everybody. Welcome back to the Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. In this episode, Christy and I talk about behavior, what it is, why we engage in it, how we can modify it, and some of the ethics surrounding that. We also do a quick behavioral analysis of my wife's parrot, Morgana. This episode was, it's part one of a two-parter, and this is the more leisurely and fun-filled one to help prepare us for a more in-depth discussion about behavior next time. I hope you enjoy. Cognitive dissonance is the perception of contradictory information and the resulting confusion and anxiety from the difficulty to resolve those contradictions. We are here to play in that realm of contradiction cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. Cool. Uh, I was thinking today it's going to be useful to do a screen share function, um, and I'll do my best to describe it audio version as well, but one of the big like tenets of behavior analysis as compared to psychology is the way that data is visually presented and interpreted is there's almost no statistics in behavior analysis and psychology is almost 100% statistics. So you have to look at the graph and see the changes in level and trend and variability, um, which is fun. I like it, but I love stats too. They're interesting. So hopefully in the future we'll have more stats, but the problem with also with behavior analysis is we help people who are very niche. (laughs) So you couldn't just throw like every autistic person in the same stat category and come up with anything that makes sense because they're extremely different um, and their behavior is different and no two are alike and their symptoms are different even um, when it comes to autism. So we have to do, it's called like small N studies. And like, I think the biggest I've seen is like 12 people in a study. Um, and there's usually one or two. Um, well, and, and that's that's something that I appreciated about the turn in probably like the last 15 years. Um, we're, we're starting to recognize that most things are a spectrum, right? We, we mm-hmm. people don't easily fit and categorize into boxes or categories, right? Whereas um, right, we can identify something and then a range of possibilities of that manifestation, right? Mm-hmm. For example, there's, there's more variation within in-groups than there is between groups. Mm. right yeah so like the, the that what it means to be whatever right there's there's that range of manifesting or presenting that um and i think that's that's important to point out and i do very much love how they took that approach with um studying autism because it is so unique and individual for each person that you don't even try clumping and categorizing you know see it at the individual yeah. level, address it at the individual level. Um, 
you know, put interventions at the individual level for individual goals rather than a blanket approach. Yeah. And it can be, it's like to every behavior analyst, it's a strength of the science that everything is like your treatment that you come up with is probably only going to work for that one person. And, you know, the concepts that you're applying are going to apply to everybody, but the actual thing that you write down for them is probably going to be just for them. And it's considered unethical to do the same treatment if you write it for someone to do it with someone else. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it can be seen as a weakness by other people. Like if you're going to get a drug approved or a treatment approved by the FDA, you have to do between group range as possible. Yeah. So they would not accept a three person study as supportive evidence, which I wouldn't either. I would need to see a hundred studies that have three people in it before I'm like, okay, this is going to work. Um, so, um, you know, the fact that there's a bunch of studies that only have three people that work, um, is kind of the body of evidence that you need, but for the FDA and for like medicine and like treatments, you need a hundred people like minimum and they all get the same treatment and they don't know that they're getting the treatment or not. And then you compare it with a control group and decide whether or not it works, yeah, which the, the, the double blind. Yeah. And that's a really good way to make sure that your pill works, but it's not going to work for psychology treatments. So, um, but it's, it's a pretty big criticism. There's a lot of criticisms with like behavior modification. Um, cause it's kind of an icky word and it gives you like an icky feeling like, Ugh. yeah. And, and I mean, well, I'm certain we'll get to that. I've got a couple of good questions that I, that I brought up. Um, I was going to say something. I think I lost it. Yeah, I lost it. It might come back. <laughs> That's okay. Um, yeah. But, but no, really quick, let me just put this plug in here for any of our um, listeners on uh, like Spotify or anything else with the audio only version. Um, like Christy mentioned earlier, there's going to be visual elements to it. So skip on over to that YouTube page. Um, you can just search um, search up me, you know, Mitchell Crute, and follow my channel, and that'll have it on there. So thumbs up, off to the races, whatever the other euphemism you want to use for we are getting into it. All right. Um, I do want to address my sources, I suppose. Um, and not to interrupt, this is what I was going to bring up earlier. I was ah. um, reviewing the literature last week and i don't know if you noticed the same trend that i did there's like a 15 or 20 year gap in the literature for behavior analyst for behavior analyst and behavior modification it goes strong up until about 85 and then it picks up again in the early 2000s and i think mm -hmm. that's what you were mentioning a couple episodes ago about that schism between the behaviorist and the cognitive psychologists and i think that that 15 to 20 year was when that we had that big upsurge in that cognitive movement. Um, and now, and now we're coming back and we're saying, Oh yeah, there's still utility and value in the behaviors perspective. So let's blend them back together. That is so interesting. Cause yeah, exactly. Um, the, it's really hard to read research that is that old, like in the sixties, cause they're using terms that are 
basically slurs now to describe people and their treatments are <clears throat> very harsh and quick. And like we applied, you know, an electric shock and we saw behavior change in this way. This is a study and it requires a little more tact than that in order for people to accept what you're doing to other people. Um, yes. So they, you did, you do see, there's still a lot of good research in the nineties. That's when Brian Awada was like creating kind of the way that we assess behavior, which we'll go into. Um, but Brian Awada developed the functional analysis and basically through that proved that all behavior has a function for the individual who is doing it. And if you can figure out what that function is, you can find something that is going to replace it. And you can also figure out how to get rid of it. Um, and then the other big name in like assessment and um, figuring out what's going on is Hanley. And Hanley is a little more cognitive, a little less, he's a little more floaty, um, but they're doing basically the same thing. Um, and I also looked at the, like the behaviorist textbook, which is Cooper, Heron and Heward, uh, published in 2020. I have, uh, shamelessly, I rented the textbook for my classes and I paid for it, but I still need it and want it. So um, I have my bootleg PDF that I use. So at one point I paid for this textbook, but my rental ran out. So um, I have it now. Um, so I looked at that. FBI agents, <laughs> if you're listening, we're still kosher. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll pay for it now. Like when I got it though, I didn't have the money, <laughs> but now if they came after me, I could pay them, but I already did pay them. So I'm not interested in doing it again. Um, so yeah, I, I support uh, stealing textbooks if you can, if you need to, they can be expensive. Um, but this is a great textbook. So um, I referenced Cooper basically just for the definition of behavior. Um, so you want to go into that? Yeah, let's go into that. How would, how would one define behavior? I think this is one of the more central, like if you understand this, then you'll know what behavior modification is really going for. Because when you say the word behavior, you think of someone misbehaving. Like your behavior is like, you need to fix your behavior. You need to fix your attitude. Um, but for a behavior analyst, behavior is anything that a person does and you can get pretty technical, but um, so it, blinking can be behavior and breathing can be behavior. So it's extremely broad. Um, Let me ask then, um, mm -hmm. does it have to be conscious? Because breathing is unconscious no. primarily. So is, is my, my body's auto-regulation considered behavior? Uh, yes, it is. Um, your heart rate 
anything that you can see like sweating can be behavior. Um, but I wouldn't say that like the heat that your body gives off is behavior. Um, but, uh, so my favorite definition is behavior is the activity of living organisms that causes a detectable change in the environment via movement through space. So anything where one thing is moving to another spot or, uh, so I wouldn't say that temperature is behavior. So that is a detectable change in the environment, but it is not behavior because it isn't movement through space. Um, and also like lying completely still on your bed is not behavior because there's no movement through space, but going from sitting to lying down would be behavior because at that point you're moving through space. So that's the way that I like to think about it with the kind of caveat that I would consider, um, like thinking is still behavior because there is your brain is moving chemicals back and forth, which is, doesn't quite fit the definition, but that's how I rationalize including, including thought in behavior. Well, in most of the time when we're thinking, we are cognitively mapping out hypothetical behaviors. Mm -hmm. Right, so they, while, while we, if I think about how I could do a backflip in the backyard, I'm not actually doing the backflip, but I'm still playing through those motions as if I were, it's like an abstracted version. Um, yeah, and if you were under an MRI, I could tell if I was trained, uh, I could tell that you were thinking of something um, or that you just had a thought, or maybe even that you were specifically thinking of doing a backflip. Um, so. Okay. Yeah, even though I can't detect it with my eyes, there is a way to detect it. So for, for the purposes of the rest of the discussion, let's stick with that strictly psychological behavior analyst definition of behavior, because that's going to be crucial to some of the questions that I have for you later. Um, I do want to take mm -hmm. a slight detour, though, and talk about that definition before we move on. How universal would you say that definition is? Or is it particularized? And if it is particularized, what are the qualia or the constraints of your definition? Let's see. If I asked a psychiatrist what the definition of behavior is, they would probably know this definition, but probably have their own. Um, so it is pretty specific to behavior analysis. Um, I don't remember the rest of your question, but I would say it is particularized. Okay. Um, well, the, the reason I brought that up is because I read... Um, I perused through a handful of different academic papers in preparation for this. And one of them uh, was about Piaget and the way that he and the author of the paper discussed um, how even inanimate objects can have behavior, so to speak, right? right. We say you're, and you're an avid 
kayaker and you go down and you kayak the same river every single day for a year, right? The behavior of that river can change over time. You know, you get floods and it's behaving differently. Um, same thing, we could say the weather is behaving funny today or erratic or the behavior of these inanimate objects or these abstract concepts. So that's why I was asking um, if we apply your definition of behavior, I don't think it would apply to that because it's very anthropocentric, which is fine because that's the subject of our talk today. Um, so I guess then where, where would you draw the line between a more universal definition of behavior, right? As can be applied to like inanimate objects and stuff like that versus your more specific behavioral analyst definition. Let's see, I think the addition, like saying that it's only living organisms is kind of getting to the point that if I were to apply behavioral principles to a river, if I were to punish the river for flowing in this direction, no matter how much I applied, it would not care or react to my punishment if I were to reward the river in some way for flowing, um, you know, very slowly, very quickly, it wouldn't react to that. So I think the, I have to be able to change the future likelihood of a behavior of an organism in order for it to fit the definition. So if you can't reach in there and apply some principles and manipulate some things, then it doesn't fit in our definition because there's no point. <laughs> like I could, you know, yell at the, I could, you know, verbally punish the clouds as much as I want and they won't stop raining. Uh, but I could yell at my dog and it would react and change its behavior and get scared and uh, call PETA on me. But um. Yeah, so I think that's the main thing is you have to be able to apply the principles to it, but I don't think that using behavior in that sort of colloquial way is, you know, people know what you're talking about and that's what matters. And honestly, when I work with clients, I have been advised not to use the word behavior at all and to discuss um using their terms and avoid putting, because behavior has a bad connotation. So I don't always do this, but I'm supposed to, you know, use the words that they're using and try not to apply any type of feeling or emotionally charged terms to the behavior of concern that that person is doing. So even like, it's a word, it lets people know what my job is and why I'm there, but I'm been told by many people not to use it with clients, which is so interesting. Yeah, that's that's weird. Um, why? Okay, two questions. Who is it that your agency field, whatever, is concerned about upsetting? Is it patients or parents? If those are the proper terms to use there. Um, secondarily, why do you think we have a negative connotation around the word behavior as applied to like juveniles or adolescents for specific example? Yeah, it's for everybody. Um, 
if I like walk into a home and start talking about how bad this person's behavior is, it's going to stigmatize them and put a label on them and make caregivers more likely to interact with them as if they are bad. Uh, they have problems. They cause me issues when really we want it to be more of a, I'm supporting a person with a disability. I am providing a service to a person with a disability rather than coming in and fixing something that's wrong, just to make sure that we're not adding any, you know, stigmatism to that person. And it can upset parents too. Like my kid is, you know, he's not bad. He doesn't have behaviors. He just struggles with X, Y, Z. It's like, yeah, I understand. I never said that your kid was bad or needs services or needs help. Um, I've actually never had that conversation, but people are worried about it. <laughs> I've never had someone mad that I'm trying to, you know, do my job. Uh, well, I've had clients mad, but never their parents. Okay. Um, uh, I didn't think that this particular rabbit hole would pop up, but I do want to go down it for a little bit more and then, then we'll get back to it. Um, why then do we consider it such praise to say that a child is well-behaved? Right, because that wouldn't that kind of throw a wrench in that whole, you say the word behavior and people go, ooh, boogeyman. And then secondly, why is it controversial to say that there are better and worse behaviors? Why is it controversial that a child exhibiting bad behaviors can't be told, or people don't want them to be told that those are bad behaviors, right? That's could be, and, and I, I bring that up because this is measurable, right? We, success over life, however defined, however, whether it's monetary success, whether it's happiness in, in meaning studies, which, you know, you can argue that those self-reported studies are different, but like also too, physical health, like we, we brought it up before, um, being happy and having meaning in your life um, has physiological reactions. People that are under stress all the time, people that are anxious all the time, their body degrades faster over time, right? So it, it, even if we have all of these measurable metrics that suggest that there are better and worse ways, loosely writ, right? Not defined, but we have these categories that we can use. Why can't we? I, I mean, that's a great question because I spend a lot of time trying not to piss people off that I'm well, trying and, to support. And, and that's literally your job. Like, Hey, you're, 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 child, adolescent, spouse, recovering from a car wreck, whatever, right? That there's the reason that you're seeking behavior modification is because there is this counterproductive, self-destructive, whatever, this negative behavior that's being manifest, which is bad. That's not to say that the person is bad because that's the fallacy of essentialism, but that they are doing and in, in manifesting bad behaviors. And we're trying to modify that into healthier, better equals good behaviors, right? <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I just find it so weird that you can't tell people the job that you are doing for fear yeah. that they won't come to you to have you do your job. 
One of the things that I always try and do, and I guess this is like just getting buy-in and getting people to enjoy speaking with me. Um, If I did go in and I was like, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, right? All right, see you next time. Um, They're probably going to dread our meetings. So, um, and that's kind of applying some behavior principles too. Like I want them to like working with me. So I spend a lot of time picking out um, what I think is going well and like, oh, that's a really great tactic. I'm going to write that down. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, yeah, that seems really tough. Um, but I'm glad you're seeing a little bit of progress and being as like positive and supportive as I can, because if I write a whole plan and I train the parents on it, but they don't do it, I've wasted my time. So I think a lot of it, like just from a practice level is getting buy-in, getting them to like working with me. Um, And from a broader level, like that's why I do it. That's why I try. It makes my job a little bit easier. If I only, if I talk about the good things as much as possible and from a broader cultural standpoint, not really sure. Cause it is a compliment to say your child is really well behaved Mm -hmm. and or that child is behaving so poorly. Um, well, I, I, yeah. I like your, I've uh, had a, com- I've had a parent meeting. Yeah. And I, I, I like your point about the, um, we'll call it the bedside manner. Cause we, we have the same approach. In uh, education, yeah. Right? If we have a parent teacher conference or we have to have mm-hmm. like an intervention with a student, right? Well, uh, the rule of thumb is you always start with something positive and you always end with something positive. Right. You give them that positivity sandwich that way, you, which is true. Like as soon as your students enter the classroom, if you start off with, I'm so tired, or this is so boring, or you guys didn't do any of your work, what are they going to do? They're immediately going to shut down. Right. Um, so mm-hmm. to a degree, I, I get that. Um, from a societal level, I think we need to match that with people having a little bit of grit and resilience. Right. Right. Because I mean, <laughs> yeah. if, if we can't take criticism, then we can't grow to make those changes that we're wanting to see made, whether personally in our household, in our communities, in our states, whatever. Um, but I digress. Let's get back to it. Um, let's do this one. Yeah, I, I was going to ask how defining behavior too narrowly might reduce the human experience and subject us to determinism, but I think your your definition that you're using isn't strictly input output, right? It's not as reductionistic as, mm-hmm. yeah. as a lot. However, um, there is a major trend in the psychological field or the field of psychology, I should say, that to be a behaviorist is to be a determinist. Um, I found a article that um, quoted the B.F. Skinner tribute issue of the behavior analyst, and that suggested that to be a behaviorist is to believe in determinism. Do you find that to be true? Why or why not? It is true. Um, it's one of the tenets of uh, behavior analysis. There's like seven um, or it's, it's one of the assumptions, I should say. Uh, so it's not a tenet, but it is an assumption that we make that 
a behavior has a cause and I can figure it out. Uh, behavior is lawful. Um, there is a greater, um, you know, environmental influence. There's something that I can write down on a piece of paper to explain this behavior. And it allows for hard science to address behavior rather than, you know, it must be, you know, the relationship you had with your mother is why you act like this now. You weren't potty trained correctly. You were not breastfed correctly. And now you have autism. It's like, well, no, <laughs> like they, you're never going to change the way their brain is, but the reason that they, you know, stim by flapping their hands, um, I could figure out that reason. So it's just a way, I don't know. I find it kind of empowering. I'm like, okay, I can do this. Like, it seems crazy. It seems like nothing makes sense, but it does. And just keep, keep chugging along and you'll figure out what it is. Yeah. I think I differ f with that more specifically with, with how we're categorizing determinism, your more psychological and measurable is more of like input output. Um, whereas mm -hmm. my more philosophical approach towards determinism is that because we can, because we have that clear input output line from the past into the present, then that means if you have the right information, you can predict all the way through the future, in which case, why? You know, why, why bother? We run that risk with determinism. Yeah. Um, well, let me, let me follow you up with this and then we'll get into behavioral functions, um, what I call the big four, which I'm interested in comparing with your big four that you brought up. Um, and then some of the, the ethics around behavior modification. Um, that article that I got, the behaviorist is determinism was an article about how BF Skinner switched from being a determinist to a selectionist by the end of his life. And part of how they mentioned it was bringing in evolution and natural selection as that passive pruning process. So let me ask you this, and then um, depending on your answer, I might have a few comments and then we can, we can keep going with the more strictly psychological behavior. Um, so how does natural selection rewarding more successful behaviors over others, giving us that evolutionarily determined rather than input output determined reasoning for behaviors does that change how you understand determinism um or or how does how does that fit let's see i think have are you familiar with like the levels of selection like that idea that there's like natural selection and then like society selection and then individual selection. Yes. Yeah. Skinner kind of posited like there's selection by consequences. So at a greater level, I eat food because I need to, like that's evolutionary. I've evolved so that I need to eat food. Um, then there's like a society level where other people eat food. Uh, 
I've been trained to do this. And then an individual level where I love cheese and sandwiches. So I'm going to have a grilled cheese. Um, and all of those things play together into determining what I'm going to do when I'm hungry um, or if I feel hungry. So I think the way I'm assuming, I'm not super sure, even though I did a whole thing on selectionism, <laughs> but uh, most people would put it in like one behavior could be explained in all of those ways. But the true answer is they're all impacting what someone is doing. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's fair. And I, I think we could do a whole entire podcast on the philosophy versus the psychology of evolution. So let's oh, just table it's that. such a good topic. It, it, it is such a good topic, um, but we'll table that and we'll come back to it. Um, you mentioned earlier that every behavior serves or fulfills a function. Um, what then is the function of behavior writ large? In, in other words, um, what would be like the meta function of why do people behave at all? I let's see the four functions of behavior are access um, or avoidance of things and then there's sort of an internal one so there's attention which is other people pay attention to me um, and pay attention could be they look at me they talk to me they stay in the same room as me, um, which that has an evolutionary advantage, seeking attention. If I'm alone in the woods and I'm scared and I want someone to come and find me, I will start yelling. So the function of that behavior is attention. I want other people to attend to me and my situation and help me. And I think that's an evolutionary thing as well. So I think behavior at large is to survive. And the more adaptive you are and the better you are at surviving, um, the better your behavior has served you, which is why like sheep, you know, will walk off edge of a cliff because the person in front of them walked off a cliff too. And that's not the most uh, advantageous behavior because they die. So it has to be, your behavior has to be adaptable and it has to be able to change to what is going on in your current environment and you have to survive. So I think behavior is meant to give you the tools to make changes in reaction to your environment that will keep you alive. I, I really like that. That was really good. Um, I had a couple thoughts when I was preparing for this in rather than starting at like an ancient humans working forwards, I went all the way back to the beginning, right? So for the first single celled organisms out of the primordial soup, right? What, what were the, and I've identified the big four, 
the four absolutely essential things to sustain life longitudinally. And that's um, access to energy, right? Eating, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. Removal of excrement, respiration, and reproduction. If you check those four boxes, life is sustained. Mm -hmm. right? So I took that as the primacy for behavior for organic life in general is to fulfill those four functions. Now, I read um, that article about Piaget last week, and um, one of the points that Piaget brought up that I, that I really liked is the, and I like Piaget because he comes from a more conceptual philosophical approach as opposed to like the Skinner, we can measure behaviors approach. His point was an organism in an environment will manifest a behavior to either in response to changes in the environment or to get something out of the environment, essentially either chasing homeostasis or threats. They need to move to go get access to something, whatever. With every change to stay in that equilibrium of sustaining life, you are enacting a ripple effect in the environment, which is going to necessitate further behavior, which is going to make further ripples, which is going to necessitate further behavior. And I think that lines up perfectly with what you were saying earlier, where we have to walk that fine line between like frozen and compartmentalized order and the chaos, both positive and negative of that unknown, that infinite potential. Mm -hmm. yeah like that is a skill <laughs> yeah um it makes perfect sense and i can kind of like the functions of behavior for a behavior analyst apply to humans only because well it applies to a lot of pets as well um because you know a bird is a flock animal presumably they have uh, a need to get attention from others and uh, they would want to escape pain. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. The functions are attention from others, uh, escape from demands, from pain, from anything you don't want to do, um, access to tangibles, which can be food, your iPad, um, and then uh, just sensory, which means that it's sort of self reinforcing, which like hand flapping can be sensory, um, which just means every time I do it, um, no one else is involved. Nothing else is involved besides me. Um, and it's, I'm getting reinforcement from that. Whereas everything else presumably requires other people at some point. So they're socially mediated and then sensory, um, is like the better word is automatic. <laughs> so it's just automatic. It requires no social mediation. It's just self-reinforcing, which is why you do it a lot. That's so those are the four that, <laughs> which one? No, the, the well, I, I see them as a group of three and then that last one tacked on the end. And we might get to it later, but I, I did have a couple questions that I might try and ask you about the difference between externally mediated behavior modification and internally mediated behavior modification. And that's how I see that 
separation between the first three and then that automatic or auto-regulation one. Yeah. It's so. probably not surprising that the ones that have social mediation are easier to modify than ones that don't. Like, because how am I supposed to get in the way of this if I wanted to reduce it or make it happen more? Um, if someone is hand flapping, there's not much I can do to get in there and change the variables. No, not without increasing their own conscious self-awareness. That would be the only way. Mm-hmm. Right. But but that requires them, especially if that tick is because they're having sensory overload or whatever, asking them to pay attention to more of those sensory inputs, probably counterproductive. Um yeah. But that's that's just me. Well, that's the thing, like if like so let's say that the person does this when they're alone in their bedroom and there's nothing else going on, that would be automatic. But if someone only does this and hand flaps when they're in sort of a stressful environment, they hand flap, their parents realize, oh, they're getting overstimulated, I'm gonna move them to a new spot, then that behavior, even though it seems like just a stim, is probably escape maintained because it's getting them out of something. So there's uh, also almost every single behavior in people is multiply maintained, meaning it is uh, probably attention and escape and tangible and sensory all at the same time in some way. And our goal is to find the one that's the most (laughs) maintaining and uh, do our best to change it. So humans are very complicated. Yeah, yeah, we're, it's, um, it's a composite of some variability of the four different factors. Um, well, then let's do this then. We've talked about it a lot, but I don't think we've clearly identified what behavior modification is and why we undergo it. And by why we undergo it, I'm, I would like you to try and stab it both like in your practice and generally speaking, why are behaviors modified at all? Do you mean like deliberately modified? Does it change your answer how I answer that? Well, kind of. I think deliberate behavior modification would occur whether or not the science of behavior analysis exists. People would be trying to influence others' behavior, regardless of if there's a thousand papers studying that effect. And this has been true. I mean, people have been training animals forever using behavior modification. That's why we have cows and that's why we have dogs that are so easily trainable. And there's probably dog trainers out there who are like way more knowledgeable at the practical application of behavior modification than me because they train a thousand dogs every year to be a seeing eye dog or something really, really complicated. And they would do this whether or not they understood the principles they were working with. And for me, it's really important to sit down and deliberately study it because we're going to do it anyways. And it's safer if, you know, we're trying to stop crime in my neighborhood 
if I truly understand what punishment is, what deterrents are, um, what how b- people are behaving. Because if I don't, then I could do something incredibly harmful and incredibly stupid and something that also doesn't work. Because, yeah, I, we've been doing it forever. We're going to continue doing it, um, whether or not you mean to. So it might be the best option is to just grit your teeth and study it and figure out what those concepts are and how they're being applied and do it in a way that's scientific and ethical and safe and effective so that it's going to work and not cause undue harm, which can be tough um, because, you know, the first person to use electric shock on another person was not a behavior analyst. They were just a dude who wanted to see what would happen. And they realized, wow, this makes people stop. I'm going to invent tasers. And, you know, so we kind of ran off with that idea for a while until we had enough science to suggest like, you know what? Electric shock is extremely aversive. It doesn't work that well. Um, It causes a lot of side effects and a lot of problems when you're using electric shock to try and change someone's behavior. So we're not going to use that. We're going to use something different. And yeah, it, it can be tough to hear that people are studying behavior and they're studying punishment and the effects of punishment and they're studying reinforcement and they're trying to manipulate people, but it's better than doing it without knowing what's going to happen. So that's why I think the science is important is because we're going to do it regardless. Yeah. And that, that's interesting that if it's something that we're going to engage in consciously or unconsciously, then we should make the conscious effort to try and do it as ethically as possible. I think that's really important there. And I do like how you bring up the unintended consequences because that's something that takes place longitudinally as well. Some of the behavior modifications that we might be accidentally incentivizing through like social media applications and stuff like that probably won't bear fruit in their full negativity until like two or three generations from now. When that behavior modification is so ingrained that that's the new norm and those normative behaviors are going to devolve even further and that's the new norm for the following generation. And then who knows how long it is before we devolve back into whatever X, Y, and Z. I could talk about tribalism or um, conflict theories or anything else like that that we're trending towards, but it's essentially all irrelevant. Comparatively speaking to being self-aware enough as a society to understand that some of the behaviors that we have are rooted in 5,000-ish years of cultural evolution and we need to be careful with what we're meddling with you know um but your 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 response segues perfectly into what i want to talk about next as far as are there limits or boundaries to behavior modification right to recognize a behavior is for a non-charged term we'll just say not efficient for the task at hand or the social setting or the environment, because that's another thing we could talk about is the active versus passive behavior modification. I think living organisms engage in that active piece, 
I'm on the playground playing with somebody, they punch me, I don't like it. So I do something to try and de-incentivize or to, to reduce that behavior or to channel it into a more positive experience for the both of us. Whereas if I only like to eat a certain type of food and it doesn't grow in the geographic region that I'm living in, I have to passively adapt and change my behavior into how I procure my food because the environment is restricting that, right? that active versus passive. But let's go back to these, these boundaries. Where are the limits? Let's just do that. Where are the limits of behavior modification, upper and lower? I think that the limit is with the physical human body. I cannot train someone to do something that is physically impossible for that body. And that might sound a little optimistic, <laughs> like I could train a, um, you know, I could train a, you know, 14 year old dude to do backflips. And so that, that sounds like, wow, that's kind of tough, but that happens all the time. People learn to do backflips. So when you have a really broad definition of behavior, everything sort of fits under that umbrella. So from a behaviorist perspective, everything you do has been learned at some point and we've all learned it. We all learned how to walk. We all learned how to raise and lower our arms um, at will. We all learned how to hold up the number one, the number two, the number three, the German three. And this has all been deliberately learned at some point, even if we don't remember it. So yeah, I think the, the upper limit is the physical human body limit. If your body can't do a backflip, I can't train you to do it. Um, but if it physically can, then I could do it. And the lower limit, I'm not sure. I'm thinking of like the smallest, most subtle behavior that I could manipulate. Um, and and if, as long as it's still measurable, I think you could do it. What I was really intending with the upper and lower limit question was to get an actual behavioral therapist thoughts on too little or too much was kind of how I was framing that. At what point is oh. me actively modifying your behavior oppressive or destructive? At what point is allowing an animal organism person to have zero behavior modification ensuring destruction for them right because if i don't modify my behavior to get out of bed to go eat i die mm -hmm. so for that from, from a from a behaviorist standpoint ethically too much or too little where are those boundaries there is a boundary of too much and too little. And I think uh, too little is anything that's going to be ineffective. So 
if I am doing something that's not working um, and I'm just doing a tiny nudge, maybe like 10 minutes a week of trying to train a person to speak or something and it's not working because that's not enough practice. <laughs> you need, you know, 24 hours of practice. Like babies learn over days and days and days of hearing people talk. So if it's not going to work, that is unethical. You have to stop and, you know, refer to someone who can help them. If someone comes to me and is like, hey, my child is beating me up. They're biting me. I have scars all over. Um, I need help. And I do something that is ineffective and I apply that treatment for weeks and I realize it didn't work. Uh, that's going to suck. <laughs> so you can't do that. Um, and if, yeah, so if it's not going to work, that is unethical and you have to find someone who can make it work, or you have to do a better job of knowing when it's not working, which is usually through data, through checking in, being attentive, um, you know, calling the client, getting updates. Hey, is this working? If not, I'll change it. And um, it's a really important piece because people trust you. They need your help. And if you're not going to actually help, you've messed up. And the upper limit is tough because what's going to be too much? There are people who think that 40 hours a week of ABA for a three-year-old is too much. And then there are people who say that's not enough. And they train parents to keep, you know, doing ABA after the child goes home from the clinic. And they say at dinner, introduce the food this way, do this after they eat it. And so there are people who think that 24 hours a day of ABA is enough. And I think what it comes down to is the content or what you're working towards. Because I think that doing 24 hours a day of language acquisition which is, you know, talking with a child, um, clapping when they try, like, yay, good job, you did it. Um, something like that is a very, very crucial life skill. And that should be practiced as much as possible. Something like potty training. If you just potty trained a kid for one hour a day, that's not going to work. That has to be a 24-hour thing um, where you're constantly taking them to the bathroom, doing wet checks and, you know, you're carrying gummies around all the time so that if they do use the potty, then you, they get a gummy. And so if you were inconsistent with that, or you're like, all right, done, we're not potty training anymore um, past, you know, 5 p.m., that would be an issue because you're, how are you supposed to be potty trained for only a certain amount of time a day? So I think it depends on the content. If I was gonna modify those really important life skills, then I would want as much time as possible. And if I was going to like, you know, if the behavior that I'm trying to modify is like head directed SIB, open hand to forehead, swinging hard enough to be heard from the next room, 
that's also a treatment I'm going to want going 24 hours a day so that there's never a time where that person is able to engage in that behavior without the consequences in because really, it's very, really, your brain is so delicate. Really quick. SIB self-inflicted behavior. Uh, self-injurious behavior. So, okay. Self-injurious. Um, and then ABA. Applied behavior analysis. Okay. I'm decent with figuring out acronyms to some degree. Um, but for the sake of our listeners that don't have any psychological training whatsoever, acronyms. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, I do that all the time. (laughs) Well, well, I mean, it's to be expected, right? We we have that ingrained um, procedural knowledge within our professions that we rely on having those pre-made packets of meaning so we can more easily, Mm -hmm. you know, move around those bigger ideas. Where, last question, and then we can do your we can do a behavioral analysis practice. Where or what do you use as your barometer to decide whether it is ethical to modify a behavior or not? Uh, do you, would you like me to? There's no, I think that's a great question. And if a person were to come to me and ask, can you help with this? How do I decide whether or not I can, whether or not I should? Um, right, because to, to, the first to, thing is. Continue. Oh, the first thing is whether or not I'm competent. <laughs> like, do I think I could? Um, so a little self-assessment of have I done that before? Am I familiar with that? Could my supervisors support me? Um, is it safe for me to try if I am not sure? Um, because if any of those are no, then I'm going to say no. I'll talk to my supervisor about helping you with that or refer them to someone who would be more competent. And, and that's fair. But what about the behavior itself? How do you judge whether the behavior itself is ethical to apply? Not whether you're capable of it, because that's assuming that, that what they're asking is a behavior that should be modified. How do we determine whether a behavior mm-hmm. should be modified? Um, I no guess I would that. have to ask. Yeah, I would have to ask like how much it's impacting their life. Like, because if a person is like, I want to watch less TV. And they also, you know, have head directed self injurious behavior. I'm going to tell them, I think that we should focus on hitting your head. And then after that's under control, then we can work on watching less TV because it's more important to save your brain than it is to watch less TV. But there are like, if the person says, no, I don't want help with my head directed SIB. I only want help with my TV watching, then I might target the TV watching to get some buy-in and get them to trust me to see if after we work on that, they would let me help with the head-directed SIB. So there are times where your priorities get backwards, just in the hopes that 
you know, they'll let you help with the, the thing that's really important. Well, the, the, one of the reasons I asked that question is uh, there's a book by Michael Schellenberger called San Francisco um, that looks at some of the more progressive policies that are doing more harm than good, such as the way that San Francisco has been trying to address their homelessness and drug addiction, which is the primary driver of homelessness. And part of what he looks at is the more progressive mindset is it's unethical to ask these addicts to change their behavior because that's part of who they are mm -hmm. right but it's self-destructive to at least some degree so at, at what point and maybe we can get into this after we do some of your analysis i do have some questions about if we modify out all negative behavior how that might end up being a net negative rather than a net positive thing. But we'll, we'll come back to that. What did you want to look at for, you mentioned animal behavior. What animals are we analyzing? Um, well, we could come up with something that's uh, fake, uh, like a problem behavior that is, uh, you know, something. My goal here is to, I give you the assessment um, and then we look at the results. And I thought it would be fun if we looked at um, an animal behavior for one of your animals that uh, <laughs> something, I don't know. The first thing that came to mind was the bird squawking. Um, what is it? Why is it doing it? And analyze that and see and apply some of these principles to that. Okay. Or we can make it. something up. No, we'll, we'll, we'll do the bird. Awesome. She lunged at me and bit me in the face the other day. So let's analyze the crap out of her. <laughs> okay. Um, host disabled participant screen sharing. So. I am the host now. Wahaha. All right, uh, I have pulled up a version of the FAST, which was developed at uh, Florida State University. And it is a screening tool. So this would be one of the first things you do before doing a more in-depth analysis. And it's a good way to get on the same page. Um, so our learner today, wanna to do Morgana the bird. And uh, yeah, so this is a couple of quick questions. Here they are. And then we'll type in the answers and then we'll get a graph okay. on what is maintaining that behavior. Um, okay, starting with the first one, your relationship. Uh, would you consider yourself a parent, instructor, a therapist <laughs> to this bird? Well, chauffeur and private chef isn't on there. So let's just put parent. Okay. We're a parent. And how long has uh, this bird been with you? <laughs> Two years. Feels like so much. Oh, wow. I can't believe she's two. Uh, do you interact with her daily? Yes. Oh, yeah. 
That's an easy yes. And uh, do you usually do meals, academic training, leisure, all of the above? Um, primarily meals, self-care, and leisure. I don't think she qualifies for academic training, and she doesn't let me do much with it <laughs> yeah. as far as work or vocational training. I've been trying to get my animals to learn how to pay bills for the longest time, and it hasn't worked yet. God, if you figure it out, let me know. Um, okay, and what behaviors are we looking at? Uh, just aggression or? Let's do aggression. And then, you know what? Let's just leave it at aggression. Yeah, I like actually, it. You know, other, um, other, uh, let's do an other and let's put attention seeking. Mm -hmm. She does. What does that look like? Her walking over to you? Um, that and uh, what's called a flock call. That's her, her screeching in the background at triple decibels. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Um, okay, and how often does the aggression occur? The aggression, it's a mix between daily and weekly. She has good days and bad days. Um, in like all animals, she has seasonal hormones. So it is spring mm -hmm. and her body is making her more oversensitive. It's understandable. Uh, I think it's also normal for a bird <laughs> to oh, use oh, yeah, their yeah, beak yeah. for what it was designed to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just for reference sake we're not analyzing some horribly abused <laughs> scared bird in a horrible environment she's living her life um okay would you describe this as mild moderate or severe uh, i'm gonna do mild little risk to health you don't think she'll kill you someday <laughs> i'm certain there's a couple days that she if she could have she would have but i don't think she's capable of it <laughs> right yeah so it's mild um okay let's go ahead and skip these sections and go straight into the actual so that was all like kind of demographic information and then yeah so these are these are the real key here um so does the problem behavior occur when the person is not receiving any attention or when caregivers are paying attention to someone else absolutely that's a yes. Does the problem behavior occur when the person's requests for preferred items or activities are denied or taken away? Yes. When the problem behavior occurs, do caregivers usually try to calm the person down or involve the person in preferred activities? That's a difficult one to answer because let's just go no, because when she is too aggressive, we stop giving her treats. When mm -hmm. 
she's doing her screeching through the house. Um, the word on the street is the best way to respond to that, to disincentivize the behavior is to not respond to it at all. So we mm -hmm. tend to try to so just kind of, yes, we tend to try to act like it's not happening. Mm -hmm. That way we're not incentivizing it in any way. All right. Is the person usually well-behaved when she's getting lots of attention or when preferred activities are freely available? Most of the time. So not every time. That's probably going to depend on hormones too. Yeah, and, but I'm, I'm comfortable with a yes because the question says usually. And usually if she can get to mom, if she can get her scritches, if she can get the snacks that she wants instead of the food because she's just like a freaking kid, then yeah, she tends to be well-behaved. <laughs> yeah. Does the person usually fuss or resist when asked to perform a task or participate in activities? If it's something that she wants to do, no, she doesn't fuss. If it's something that she doesn't want to do, like we've had to towel her to get her back into her cage so we could go to family dinner before. Ooh, that's a tough one. So I'm gonna click yes and no, because it depends. <laughs> and that, that one's also hard to apply to a bird because like what activities does she have to do? Um, Okay, does the problem behavior occur when the person is asked to perform a task or to participate in activities? I'm gonna say no, because for the most part, if she's demanding attention and we give her attention, that tends to cut down those vocal demands for attention. Mm -hmm. If the problem behavior occurs while tasks are being presented, is it usually the person, is the person usually given a break from tasks? Does timeout count? Let's see. This would be like if you were trying to like trim her nails or something and she's aggressive, would you stop and try again later or just power through? Most of the time we power through. So I would say no. Okay. So she's usually not given a little bit of a break. Is the person usually well-behaved when she is not required to do anything? It's like a 60-40. <laughs> she she can um but there i mean it, it's a yes and a no right she has she okay, has I've clicked toys, both she has enrichment stuff she has food but if it's not what she wants or she can't see mom or she's in her cage because we're trying to eat family dinner without her she definitely lets us know she's not happy mm-hmm so she would not be super chill with nothing oh, to do. No, no, no. If there's food around, like she is, she's 50% pigeon, 50% bald eagle. And that results in her being like some <laughs> sort of parrot vulture. So does the problem behavior ever occur when no one is nearby or watching? Not usually. 
that would be tough with aggression. How can you bite someone with no one nearby? <laughs> um, or has, attempt. She has been known to yell at her toys before. So she's in her cage and she is playing with her <laughs> toys. She, she has a bell on uh, like a hemp rope that has a couple different wooden blocks on it. And it'll fall between the grates. But the bell will get stuck. But she can't get it back up. And so she'll pull on it and then she'll just... Ah, and then scream at it and then pull on it again and then scream at it again. It's rather humorous. <laughs> Poor bird. Life is tough without thumbs. Um, does the person engage in the problem behavior even when leisure activities are freely available? Yes. All right. Like, so that does like not the help. Rest of my kids, she has more toys than she knows what to do with. <laughs> and she refuses to play. Uh, does the problem behavior oh, yeah does the problem behavior appear to be a form of self-stimulation how do you mean or can you give me give me some clarity on that i guess would she do this if she if no one was around just for fun or is the goal always for other people to hear her she talks to herself in her sleep so i would assume that part of it is self-stimulation mm-hmm. and then is the problem behavior less likely to occur when sensory stimulating activities are presented I'm going to say yes and no. So she has a she has a treat toy to simulate foraging that when we put her favorite treats in it, she's been known to keep herself entertained there for an hour or so. Mm-hmm. At the same time, even her favorite toys, if she's in one of her moods, she'll just ignore it and demand attention. Yeah. Uh, So is the problem behavior cyclical in nature, occurring for several days and then stopping for a while? Yes. Like most behaviors, um, it manifests for a while and then it dissipates for a while and then it manifests for a while. It's it's not a flat curve. Mm -hmm. It's a roller coaster graph. Very technical term there. Does the person... (laughs) does the person have recurring painful conditions such as ear infections or allergies not that i know of that's one of the weirdest questions on here and everyone's like no i guess yes um is the problem behavior more likely to occur when the person is ill i've never seen her sick so i'm gonna say no Although it it would make sense that if the person or animal manifesting the behavior, a behavior such as aggression, is going to act more aggressively if they're already uncomfortable or overstimulated, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes, correct, yeah. Um, that can be a huge setting event. Person is like, actually, that was the last straw. <laughs> um, 
So if the person is experiencing physical problems and these are treated, does the problem go away? We're going to problem go behavior NA. go away. We're going to go NA on that one because it's safe. To, yeah, to my knowledge, she's healthy, no physical anything as a root cause for those behaviors. Yeah. Okay, so one through four is three. Uh, so that's it. That's the fast. And there is three there. Um, five, six, seven, eight. Two here. And we'll take a look at our graph. Um, automatic is nine. One, two, three. And then the last ones are automatic pain attenuation. No, 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 so we'll do one. All right, here's our graph. <laughs> so um, I'm glad we did bird behavior because it's extremely complicated and uh, Sometimes when I do like a fake or made up one, it can be easy to come up with something very simple and have a clear winner. So uh, for her, the two main functions of her behavior appear to be social attention and uh, automatic sensory stimulation with a little bit of escape from tasks. And then possibly uh, she might do this to uh, attenuate pain, which means kind of distract herself from pain. And this is how the fast is done. And it always looks like this because there's never, it's never simple. And if it was simple, you would have figured it out and this wouldn't be a problem <laughs> that is currently ongoing, right? Yes. Um, so let, let me ask a follow-up question. I think all of that's accurate. Mm -hmm. Definitely the social preferring attention piece, um, sensory stimulation to a degree, being a flock animal, or at least being a flock example of bird, because not all birds are, are flock animals but Indian ringneck parrots are, it stands to reason that at least some of her flock calling are because she wants to receive that stimulation of hearing a flock call. She's biologically primed to do that and respond to those things. And so she doesn't hear them. She tries, she gets that. And, and I can imagine it triggers some really deeply ingrained reward structures in her brain. My question mm -hmm. is, what do you use, or rather, let me ask it this way. How do you use this graph to determine target modifiers and target goals? Let's see. The goals are gonna come from what the client wants. So 
if they are okay with, you know, flock calling sometimes, but they really want it to stop at night, then we would, that would be the goal. If they wanted absolutely no flock calling, we probably have to have a conversation about realistic goals. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then a behavior like aggression that would preferably be zero or near zero levels for people. For a bird, it might be a little bit higher because it's kind of the way that they interact with the world is with their beak. So you might get bit. <laughs> and uh, so it might be, you know, uh, we want want to level, you know, bring that to like a 10% of the time level. Um, so that would, this would just depend on what the client wants. And what I would use this information for is this is technically a screener. So after doing this, then you would give a more targeted assessment. Like, okay, I'm really going to look at social and the automatic sensory part of it for the next interview we're going to do. When I go in for my observation, I'm going to look for these things specifically, and I'm probably not going to worry about pain attenuation or asking about, you know, illnesses or things like that, because the screener said that that wasn't something to really worry about. Uh, these can be wrong, but it's a good place to start to give a more like, okay, now I know what I'm going to ask about when I go in for my interview. Do you have separate batteries that you use for like the social attention seeking and the pain attenuation or are those more informal, you know, you need to look at these metrics. So I'm just going to ask general these questions. It, yeah. In my role, I, it is more general because um, I don't have that much time. So I'll just ask them like directly, like, well, what do they want from you when they do this? And it's like, well, they want me to pick them up and cuddle them. And that's good enough for me. Um, but a true hardcore behavior analyst would not take um, self-report. Like this is what happens. And they would want to see they would want to get an actual observation of it, yeah, do an observation, um, which can be tough because uh, I don't do that because I don't have the time and I trust that my client's parents know what's going on and they always do. So I might need to wrap up. Yeah. Um. I have like 20 questions that I thought up for this, but let me pick out one or two more and then we can do any last words if you want. Let's do this one because in part of our preparation, you mentioned modeling that, or at least that's what we in the, the education profession call it, where we have students learn behaviors, at least partially by observing us do those behaviors. Um, things such as annotation during reading, reading aloud for students so they can hear cadence and enunciation, writing skills, metacognition, the teacher modeling all of those, thinking out loud or demonstrating my thought process to the student as I go to annotate this helps them to start 
doing those same procedures when they do those same tasks. So if bad behaviors serve as models for those social pressures to passively modify our behaviors, for example, seeing someone else get arrested for stealing something disincentivizes everybody that observes that from attempting to steal something. There's that, that passive role that that plays. If we were able to modify out all negative behaviors, would that set us up for, for lack of better terms, would that set us up for failure as we no longer have those visual and experiential determinants for what bad behavior is? I, man, I guess no, because I've never personally witnessed a murder and kind of walked through the whole process, but it has been told to me with words and I have the capacity to understand that. And even though I've never seen it, I've never been to a trial, um, I've never met someone who's murdered, I have been told about these things. And so for me specifically, and most people, if you explained it to them, then they would get it without it having to be modeled. So ideally no, but not everyone has the capacity to hear it being told to them. Um, so if that was the case, maybe I would do like a video model of like, here's someone getting murdered and the person got in trouble for it. And you could sort of, you know, it doesn't have to be real for it to work. Um, I could uh, contrive something to model what would happen if you engaged in a bad behavior. So I would say, no, we, we could find ways around that. That's fair. I came across this quote, I'm not exactly sure which academic article I got it out of, but it's character does not inform behavior. Behavior informs character. What do you think that means? It's probably the, uh, your actions speak louder than words type thing. Like people's opinion of you is based on how you act rather than what, how you say you act, which is true. So I think our perceptions of people's personality, it is influenced by what you say. Like if I say I'm a really bubbly person, that's going to probably put that seed in your mind and you're going to think I'm very bubbly. But if that's completely opposite from what you observe, then you're, yeah, you're just going to think I'm a liar. Well, and I think that applies to value structures too. Right, because there's that stereotype of the community of churchgoers. And then as soon as they get done leaving church, they go out to the local diner and they are just terrible people to their servers. <laughs> you know, that it's... Um, while we can use verbal and mental goalposts in declarations of virtue as ways to begin modifying our behavior. It is actually the behaviors that we manifest that determine 
are plotting along that value graph. Mm -hmm. That's all for this episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Tune back in soon for part two, where we take a more philosophical and in-depth and technical approach to behavior and how we should modify it if we should. Until then, enjoy these couple of pictures of the star of the show, Morgana, as she judges, lunges, and sleeps. Thank you all. I appreciate it. If you enjoy the uh, podcast, make sure to subscribe, and please leave us any feedback for how we can do anything better. See you all next time.